The story of a man named David, he is one of the more famous people in history, and especially the Bible. Uh, We are going to look at Psalm 62. You have it in your notes. If you can pull out your notes, if you have them, they were, Psalm 62 is, it's a psalm, which is a song. You may not know this, but David was a songwriter. He was the Bono of his day. He, this guy wrote songs in his sleep. He wrote hundreds of them. We've captured, I don't know exactly how many are his in the book of Psalms, maybe about a hundred of them. Uh, this guy was poetic And we are still receiving from, leaning on, and pulling from his songs, his lyrics today. And we're going to look at that. Uh, This is the good news translation of the Bible. Some of you are like, I don't care, it's the Bible, right? Yeah, there's different translations. And just for like a teachable moment, I want to alleviate any confusion or stress about that. Uh, Just like... Translating, my wife is fluent in Spanish, so she speaks Spanish around the house some and in settings. And I asked her, so what is it like? Like, are there certain words and phrases that like don't completely just naturally translate to English? She's like, yes, I get stuck sometimes when someone is speaking to me in Spanish and it's this thing that makes perfect sense. And then I try to say it in English, but I have to like pull ideas from different places because it's just not like a perfect translation, you know what I mean? That's all the Bible translation is. There's just different guys, different groups of people got together and they looked at these verses and they said, well, we think that this translates a little bit more similar to this and they wrote it this way. And other other guys said, well, I would use this word instead of that word. And so they're just like these very minute differences and that's why you have different Bible translations. Great? Great. So we're looking at the good news and uh, Psalm 62 Before we get into it, let me just tell you a little bit about what's happening when David writes this song. David had been king over Israel for a a while now. He's getting a little bit older. He has children, uh, and his family life is a mess. His family is in shambles. David was not the greatest of dads. Uh, David had let things spin out of control. He had lost the respect and the connection with his children. And one of his kids in particular, named Absalom. Now, Absalom was rebellious. He was angry at his father. He was angry at his father for being disconnected and maybe obsessing too much about expanding the kingdom and going on all these battles and going in all these different directions. And he decided that he didn't think his father should be king. In fact, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Maybe you had heard that story. And so Absalom, that, that kind of made their family spin out of control. And that's another thing that Absalom is mad about. This man has no integrity. He shouldn't be king. So in Absalom, David's son, in his rebellion, he decided he hates his father. And so he stands outside the gates of the city, and he tells people not to follow David anymore, not to follow the king. For four years, he stands outside the gates, and he's just stirring up trouble for his dad. He's saying he should not be trusted. He's a terrible dad. He shouldn't be king. You can't trust the things he says. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. And then he moves on. He says, but if I were king, things would be different. I would do this, this, and this. And so Absalom, David's own son, is turning the people against him, against David the king. And that's where we find ourselves. It gets, it gets so bad, in fact, that Absalom, after a few years, people start believing him. And David doesn't stand up 
David doesn't do anything about it. You imagine that his heart is kind of in turmoil, right? Because he doesn't want to just smack him down. It's his son. And he's got to feel some guilt over how he raised him poorly. And so he thinks, well, this is partially my fault. What am I going to do? I'm not. And he just lets it go. And over time, the people rally around Absalom, and they run David out of the palace. So David is running for his life when he writes this song. And out there somewhere in the wilderness, kind of running for his life, he has clarity, and he sees how he got off track. He sees what has happened. He reflects on where things went wrong in his life. And in Psalm 62, it starts off like this. I wait patiently for God to save me. I depend on him alone. If you're using a pen, circle him alone. And then again here, he alone protects and saves me. He is my defender, and I shall never be defeated. Did you hear that confidence? Somehow, out of his palace, having his son taking over the palace and just doing all kinds of unbelievably dishonoring things in his palace, he is out here on the run, not sure if he's going to get his kingdom back. And yet, he has clarity. He goes, God alone is my defender. God alone is my hope. God alone will save me. I cannot be defeated, connected to my God. Now, David had been a God alone, God only guy. See, David realized that there's two kinds of people. There are God only people, and there are God and people. God only people, who, for God is my hope. He is my salvation. He is my refuge, as we see in this, in this song. And then there are the God plus. Like, God's good. God, I'm, God's cool. God, God's in the mix for me, but it's God and something more. And David had been a God-only person when he grew up. Remember, he grew up as a shepherd. He grew up tending sheep. He grew up kind of the, the runt of his family. And so he got sent out to the pasture, literally, to tend sheep, which was kind of a, just a very degrading job in that day. And so while he's alone tending sheep, he, he nurtures this connection with his God. He is a God-only person. And he fights off lions and bears with his bare hands because he is connected to this God. He is focused on his God. He, he's out on his own, and he's writing these songs just left and right. They're just coming to him, you know, just flowing out of his mouth like they're nothing because he's focused on his God. Even still, right, right after that, when he gets called to the battle lines to give his brothers, who are the warriors, some food, he sees this Goliath out there. And he thinks, who's this, who's this punk Goliath that's mocking God? And he walks out there to, to take a stand for him. Why? Because he thinks that, you know, the, the soldiers around him are going to have his back? No. Saul offers him, the king at the time, offers him his, his armor. And he says, no, no, no. I trust that God alone will protect me. Saul offers him his spear. And he says, nope, I'm good. I trust that God alone will give me this victory. And young small, naive David walks out there with just him and his God and some rocks, and he takes down Goliath. He was a God-only guy. And then David goes uh, into this next season and chapter of his life, and he is, he's being told, I mean, God has promised him, has told him that he would be king, and yet Saul, the current king, is trying to kill him, and David is running for his life, and Saul has soldiers that are looking for him. But David trusts in God. God alone. 
And then something happens. Something happens when David transitions to actually being the king. And he wins battle after battle, fight after fight, war after war. The territory expands, more income coming in, more chariots, more horses, more soldiers, more prestige, more fame. It's all just piling on, and something, something shifts for David. He gets off track. David becomes consumed with all his opportunity, his status, his, his achievements, his wealth. It becomes important to him. And you might know this, but the more stuff you get, the more energy you expend to protect it and ensure it. And the more status you gain, the more likely you are to try to jostle and rally and kind of keep people at bay to protect your status. That's the temptation. And that's how David became a God and kind of a guy. God, you're my guy, but I really want to be the emperor of the universe, too. I mean, I want this kingdom to keep expanding. God, you know, I'm with you. I'm going to write a, I'm going to throw you a psalm here and there. Uh, but I also want to have, like, 900 wives and concubines, if that's cool. So, uh, God, I also, you know, you're good, and I'm, but there's also these other things that are going to be about who I want to be. And I'm not necessarily going to consult you as much because look at how well things are going under my leadership. And David gets caught up, and he becomes a God and person. So think about a time in your own life. Has, has there been a time for you where you were a God-only person? Where it was so clear, life, life was so simple. You felt like you heard God. You felt like he was blessing your path. You felt like everything you did was in line with him. You felt like uh, you were just connected. Things were going clearly. And then somewhere along the way, it got complicated your identity got confused. You wanted more stuff. Just God alone wasn't enough, and you wanted to, to pad your accounts in some kind of a way. That was David. That was David. He became a God and man. And when you become a God and man, you become vulnerable because you realize that these things don't satisfy. These things, his kingdom, his money, his riches, it can all be taken away like that. And David found himself vulnerable. He found himself at the mercy of the people that he was trying to lead so well. And look at what it says in the next verses. It says, how, long, how much longer will all of you attack someone who is no stronger than a broken down fence? You only want to bring him down from his place of honor. You take pleasure in lies. You speak words of blessing to my face, but in your heart you curse him. David is talking about himself have you ever been in a room like this, in an auditorium or at a party or something like that, and you can just like pull yourself out of the experience and like, like you're looking down from the corner of the room like at your life as it's playing out? You're, lo you're looking at this story as people are interacting with you or maybe they're talking about you or you're afraid they are. You're watching your interactions, how you're handling it. That's what David's doing here. He's looking down at his life and kind of seeing it from this perspective. And he's, seeing, he's seeing himself as this vulnerable frail guy. Yeah, he's the king of all the land and has whatever he wants, and he's just a guy. And he's hurt. He's hurt that his son and these people would turn on him, and that they would go through the motions and honor him in front of his face, but they would stab him in the back and curse his name, and eventually overthrow him and run him out of the city. He's hurt because he's a regular guy, and he sees with clarity now what's happened. He sees himself for what he's become, the crisis 
of the moment has brought him clarity. And so he says again, I depend on God alone. I put my hope in him. He alone protects and saves me. He is my defender, and I shall never be defeated. Listen, friends, here is my hope for you, that it doesn't require disaster to get your attention to focus your dependence on God, that it doesn't require crisis before you realize, man, I've gotten... I've I've got a mixture here. I've been a God only or I want to be a God only person, but I've got all this other stuff now that matters probably a little too much to me. And I've got to eliminate it. I've got to stay right here with God. Some of you know that I played volleyball in college. And uh, before that, I was like one of the better volleyball players that I knew. Uh, Like high school, like... (laughs) I was pretty good, and you know, you go out and you play on the grass courts or in the high school gym, and usually I was winning all the time, and in my high school league, I was pretty good, but then you get, you go to college, and it's different, Uh, so I show up at USC, and I'm literally the second smallest guy on the team at 6'3", and I feel like I'm the slowest, the weakest, I don't jump the highest, you know. I I am humbled by what I'm having to play with and against here. And I I went from lots of confidence growing up in being this great athlete uh, to now wondering, where do I fit? And what I didn't realize was that I had slowly become a God and a God plus person. And for me, it was God plus great athlete that had become part of my identity. God was God, and he was good, and he had my back, and I, you know, heaven and all that stuff was cool, uh, but I wanted to be dominant, and I wanted to be really good at this game. And when I got to a place where I wasn't anymore, my identity was fractured, and I didn't know what to do. I show up, and there's, you know, I'm 6'3", in tall shoes, and there's a, guy, there's a guy who's 6'10 from Hungary uh, and another guy who's 6'6 from Albania, and he happens to be in my position. And they're cussing at me in languages I don't understand, and there's chaos, and I just feel so small. And after halfway through the season, when I'm sitting on the bench, I'm not playing. I'm an afterthought for the coach. I get up, just a regular practice, and all of a sudden they're tossing balls, and I'm a setter. I'm just supposed to set it outside in this regular drill, and I can't set. They toss it, and I just, it was like something happened to me, some kind of disease or thing happened in my head, and I like couldn't do it anymore. I just looked clumsy and awkward, and it was like it had all been mounting, my identity, my security, who I was, what I thought I wanted, where I got my value, And I wasn't getting it anymore. It had been taken away by people that were better than me, and I didn't know what to do. And I physically broke down. There's a movie called Ten Cup where it happens to a golfer, right? He's supposed to be this great golfer, and now he gets gets to this place where he loses all his confidence, and he's just shanking every putt, every swing. That's what it was for me. It was humiliating. My coach just laughed at me, and then he sent me off and put someone else in. And so at the, later that night, I went on top of my roof, and I was just crying. And I had 
read somewhere in the Old Testament that when people were really desperate, sometimes they would tear their clothes. So I didn't know what that meant, but I just thought, I, I need to do, I'm not going to sacrifice an animal, so I'm going to tear my clothes. And I, I'm up on top of this roof with a ripped off shirt, and I'm literally crying out to God saying, God, help me. I've gotten off track somewhere. Obviously, this is too important to me, and now it's not working, and I don't know who I am. I don't want to go back to practice tomorrow. I don't know what you want from me. Please help. And I was up there for an hour just crying and pacing and wondering what I was going to do because, because this was so humiliating. And it's not a story where then all of a sudden I go and I'm the next great Olympian. It's a different story. It's a different kind of story. Because I go back to practice and, I, and it starts to get a little bit better. And as my play starts to get a little bit better, what's happening inside is more profound. What's happening inside is I start to care less and less about being the best volleyball player in the world. And I start to ask God more and more, why do you have me here? That season ends, and the next season, 6'6", Albanian, who, by the way, just played for our Olympic team in uh, wherever, that, in London, uh, he's still on the team, and he was the captain my freshman year, but my team voted me captain sophomore year. God didn't have me there to be the best volleyball player. And if I would have been obsessed with that, I would have missed it. He had something else for me. He wanted to teach me about my dependence on him and that he would use me how he wanted to use me. And that would be leading these guys. Sports teaches us something very interesting about our life is that when we obsess about our performance and how we play, we tend to tighten up, right, whatever your sport is. When you're so focused on not making a mistake and you're so tied your identity to this thing, you tighten up and you don't play your best. But when your identity is solid and confirmed and you know who you are and where you get your worth, you play free and you play better. And my game started to improve. Why? Because I didn't care about volleyball? No, because it didn't define me anymore. And that's what begins to happen is we become, we, we shift from God only. God, you define my identity. You are my hope. You are my defender. You are going to take me to wherever it is, the lofty goals that I may have. But they do not define me. That is not what I shoot for. What I shoot for is you. And I trust that you will bring the rest too. Jesus said, seek first me and my kingdom. And I'll give you everything else too. I know what you need. But when you seek the other stuff and that becomes your main thing, it all comes crashing down. It doesn't work. You, be just, you become a God and person. God, God and. You know, the universe will bring me whatever it brings me. I'm, God is a part of it and this is a part of it and this is a part of it and it's just one big mix. No. God spoke this universe into being. He is your source. Where else would you go to get anything? God only. God only. The next verse says, My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my strong protector. He is my shelter. Trust in God at all times, my people. Tell him all your troubles, for he is our refuge. Verse 9 talks about putting your trust in people. If you become a God plus people, worrying too much about what people think, it says human beings are like a puff of breath. Great and small alike are worthless. 
He's not saying that human beings are worthless. He's saying the comparison is worthless. The comparison to wanting to appeal and be liked by people of influence versus regular or smaller in stature people, that's worthless. It doesn't matter. This is the king here speaking. This guy had all the authority, and he's saying that's just silliness. We're all the same. Don't worry about what people think. Don't worry about what they can do for you. Don't worry about if they're talking behind your back or how you compare. David finally learned after he had gone through this mess, clarity of being a God-only person, not a God plus the opinions of others. And in verse 10, he learned about not being a God plus money person when he says, don't put your trust in violence and don't hope to gain everything, anything by robbery. Even if your riches increase, don't Depend on them. Here's a formula to remember. God plus anything is bad math. God plus anything equals less. Or if you're more of like an algebra multiplication person, uh, God to the factor of zero is always going to be zero. Anytime you try to multiply by something else, you bring something else into the equation that matters more to you, you will lose. It's just not how he's wired this universe. It's not how he's wired your soul. He wants us to be God-only people. And then he'll bring the rest. He'll bring what we need. He's the source of every good thing. Verse 11 and 12 says, More than once I have heard God say that all power belongs to him and that his love is consistent. Sometimes we try to get obsessed with power. There's a quick story that I want to tell you from the book of Acts. So, so David is the king, and Jesus, who we celebrate as God in flesh, who died for us, that all things are forgiven, and we can have life in him. He came in the lineage of David. So he was a relative. He came down the line of David. He came and died, and he went back to heaven, and he sent his spirit to live in us, and his spirit brought power. And in the early days of the church, which is, which is the book of Acts, the book of Acts literally means the acts, the actions of the early church. These guys, Paul and the other apostles, they were, they were doing crazy things. There was, there, was, uh, there was a demonstration of power that was unique. This is Acts chapter uh, 19, verse 11, if you want to look at it later. It says, God did extraordinary mir- miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Dang. So even stuff that these guys touched was taken, and people were being physically healed as a result. There was power. There was power with the Spirit of God. And people noticed, okay? So you had this whole, you had this group of people that were God and. They were, they kind of believed, maybe they had some Jewish background, or maybe they, maybe they had heard Jesus teach, and they thought, yeah, I agree with some things that he's saying. That's cool. I'll throw that into the mix. But they were also dabbling in sorcery over here. They were also doing witchcraft or whatever else is involved in that. They were, they were both and types of people. And so they saw an opportunity here to leverage this power for their own personal gain. So they listened and overheard what Paul and some of the apostles were saying. In Jesus' name, I, you know, I heal you. And so they started going up to these people that had demons in them, demonic manifestations, and saying, come out in Jesus' name. And on one occasion, this dude looked back at him with this demonic spirit in him. He goes, I've heard of Jesus. I've heard of Paul, but I haven't heard of you. And this guy pounces 
on these God plus people, beats them within an inch of their life, strips them naked, and sends them running out. And then in verse 17, it says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those believed who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And what had they done? They had become God and. They had become God plus people. And they openly confessed, this doesn't work. We want to submit to God and God only. It says they, they openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is the equivalent of about four years' wages. So you would think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. I'm going to stop dabbling over here in this stuff. I'm just going to sell it on eBay. And, you know, no, 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 no. When they came face to face with the reality of what they were doing, they took all that stuff incredible, of incredible monetary value and they burned it in a public display saying, we're God only. We're God only now. We're Jesus only. We're, it's us and Jesus. We confess this stuff doesn't work. And when they did that, the Bible says, in this way, because of this, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Friends, there are things in all of our life we will constantly have to keep an eye on and battle against that tempt us to be God plus people. God plus what these folks think of me. God plus I want to be a millionaire. God plus these things. Things that aren't necessarily bad things, but when they take place of our number one priority, when they take the place and start to fill and get tied into our identity, we get into trouble. And we can avoid the kind of crisis that David lived if we start again and remind ourselves today, no, God, we want to be God only. We want to be about you and you alone. You alone are my shelter. You alone are my hope, my refuge. I trust that you will provide everything else that I need because you are the great source, the creator of all the universe. Why else would I make some other little things my God? Why would I have some mixture in my life of things that I depend on? No, I depend on you. I want to invite you today to pray that prayer and confess whatever it is that's on your heart that has become a mixture, that has taken too high of a place in your own soul, and just say, God, I'm with you. I'm with you. I want to be one of these ordinary people that abandons their heart to you, like our friend Jamie, like many of us in here. And you do extraordinary things through me because I'm with you. God, see your people. You know our hearts. Give us the courage to respond. Give us the courage to be about you and you alone and to trust that you are good, that you have our best interests in mind, and that even the most powerful kings of their day would have given everything away for you because they know that you are the source. It all comes back to you. Give us confidence in that, God, and the courage to walk out these doors and to live that way in love with you. In Jesus' name.